I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this LRB conversation with Rachel Kushner. This book of essays, The Hard Crowd, is just out. I'm Hal Foster, an art critic and Kushner fan. Rachel is the author of three prize-winning novels, Alex from Cuba, The Flamethrowers, and most recently, The Mars Room. There is also the three crystalline stories in the strange case of Rachel Kay and now these wonderful essays as well. We will talk for about 40 minutes, then open it up to you, your questions. Please use the Q&A function, and we promise to be done in an hour or so. So, Rachel, let's start with the usual, how the book came about, how you selected the text, how you sequenced them. Sure. Hi, Hal. Um, So in putting together uh, a collection of essays, I had had the idea of doing a book like this a few years now um, as I sort of began to collect um, various essays that I had written in different contexts and forms. And I had been publishing these essays since before um, I even wrote my first novel. Um, But that said, it felt a little arbitrary to simply put together a book of essays because I could. In other words, because I had enough essays that I felt would be presentable and, um, you know, worth republishing or revisiting. Instead, I waited until felt I had a kind of through line for what the book could be. It needed to have its own concept. And um, even if it sounds a little abstract, I wanted each of the essays to kind of like hum within the same tone or register. Um, And when I came up with this phrase, the hard crowd, that was sort of the hook for me. And each one of the essays needed to somehow fit within that. So I only selected maybe about a third of what I've published over the last 20 years, by which I mean among what I've published that I would be interested in in sharing or presenting. So I just went through and kind of tried to create this thread where I start with the first essay, which is uh, about an illegal motorcycle road race that I participated in uh, as a young woman at the age of 24. And it's the first thing that I ever published, but maybe more importantly, 
it gives a kind of picture of some version of who I was before I became a writer. Um, and then from there, I thought about the kind of end tone of that essay and how to kind of make the leap to what's next in the queue. And what seemed next in the queue was an essay that I wrote about the time I spent um, in a very densely populated refugee camp um, that's Palestinian, but technically inside the borders of Israel. And there's a child driving a car. He looked about maybe 10 years old. Um, and that was the first scene of that essay. And it kind of went from the motorcycle race to me as more of a mid-career writer, and yet in a certain way, um, immersed in a world that kind of in a, I guess, had different kinds of dangers than the motorcycle race. And I was in a different phase of my life, but there's some leap that I was interested in between the two. And I went from essay to essay through the book that way and just tried to pick things that only fit within this subheading because I wanted it to be an experience for the reader where you start at page one and end at page 250 and feel like you've been taken on some kind of journey rather than subheading things, for instance, by subject matter so that people who are interested in art read the art essays or people who are interested in Dennis Johnson just read that essay and, and so forth. Beautiful, thanks. Um, I, I wanna ask you about your notion of the hard crowd. Um, but first, a couple of questions about you as a novelist who is also an essayist. I mean, it seems to me that you're part of an extended generation uh, of writers who do both. There's Hari Kunzru, Zadie Smith, Joseph O'Neill, Ben Lerner, Tom McCarthy, Ritka Galchin. You can go on. It's not um, exactly new to this extended generation, but it is pronounced. I mean, can you talk about your commitment to the essay and what has oriented you to the critical, to the theoretical even? I mean, you allude to Lacan and De Boer and others. Um, what's what's the, the hyphen between novelist and essayist? Who isn't alluding all the time to Lacan and De Boer? Oh, you bet. <laughs> um, well those people that you mentioned, um, you know, Hari Kunzru, Zadie Smith, Ben Lerner, I think you mentioned, Rivka Galchin, mm -hmm. Joseph O'Neill. Um, most of those people are good friends, but beyond that, and I think more importantly, I would categorize them as writers who face outward, as I call it, um, by which I mean people who draw for their dynamism as artists from the great big world and are curious about visual culture and about film and about philosophy and about kind of the ethics and politics of their time um, and kind of also always willing to learn new things and reappraise. Um, and I guess I would like to place myself among that maybe softer crowd of people who face outward. And, um, you know, whether it's writing a novel or writing an essay, I think I orient myself and understand myself by looking at cultures and subcultures and worlds that don't maybe have to do with me directly. Um, and rather offer me the opportunity to learn something new and kind of reorient myself based on that new new knowledge. So, um, 
yeah, I think that if you do face outward, then your novels maybe have a kind of amplitude that's sort of incorporating the mechanics of the world. But you may also pick things up along the way that um, present opportunities or seem more suited to an expository piece, which for me, I don't want to place things into easier and harder along with my facing inward or facing outward. But a nonfiction piece is more straightforward for me. I can sit down and sort of muscle the thing out, whereas fiction is a more inchoate journey where you're sort of trying to um, stage an encounter with yourself, maybe to go with a kind of psychoanalytic framework. Um, and that cannot really be directed by the writer all the time. You just have to be there in the place. And then the novel becomes a sort of accretion of the good moments where you have a genuine encounter. But with nonfiction, you can make it happen if you sit down and do the work. I love that answer, but that's how I feel about the essay, for me anyway. But I have a, a similar question about uh, one of the subworlds within the world at large, and that's contemporary art. Um, you're also part of a cohort, maybe much the same list, of people who are interested in contemporary art, informed by it. Um, again, novelists have long written about art, but they tended to focus on old masters, and often they were quite Philistine about contemporary work. I think Don DeLillo is the great exception here, but he focuses on art in his novels only. Um, can you just talk about the importance of contemporary art for you, for your work? I mean, you write really smartly in this book um, about artists like Jeff Koons, Thomas Demond, Richard Prince. I mean, the, other, the latter two a little bit obliquely, um, but I'd love to, to know for my, my purposes, why you were drawn to it and what you get out of it, because you are a brilliant critic as well. Well, thanks, Hal. Um, yeah, I actually included very little of my art writing in this book. And I think that is primarily because I sort of consider it um, its own discourse um, and its own world. And maybe someday uh, I would make a book of my art writing. And perhaps the joke in that is only presenting the Coons essay as my one art essay and then pointing out within the essay that, you know, he is the artist beloved by people who are totally hostile to the art world, since he kind of represents this more populist figure, whether that's a performance or real or some oscillation between the two, it kind of works to place Jeff Coons in a book that's maybe more, you know, about culture generally, because one can think about Coons in relationship to advertising, you know, and to people like Marshall McLuhan. And um, yeah, I guess the idea of persuasion generally and the history of persuasion. Um, in terms of the art world, you know, I moved to New York City uh, to, I guess, go to school to get an MFA in writing, but also I'd always wanted to live there and had tried to move to New York right after college. Um, had no skills except for bartending and could not find a job in New York. And so I failed to live there and went home to San Francisco, sort of um, 
you know, broken a bit and had not made a successful leap into this wonderful cosmopolitan place where I had wanted to be. So when I came back for this MFA program, um, I, I guess I'd had these sort of ideas about what New York City was. And to me, it wasn't the center of the publishing world or the literary world. Um, it was the center of the art world. And maybe by virtue of having an aunt who's a kind of artist, video maker, I'd gotten a taste of the art world through her. And when I moved there and met artists, that seemed like um, a social world I wanted to have an attachment to because every time you meet, at least then in the 90s, when you meet people, I felt like I could learn a great deal from them because they did have this shared discourse. Um, so my attachment maybe was built up through childhood. I was always interested in art and took a lot of art history in college. Um, studied with Carol Armstrong, who later wrote for Art Forum, and then I met her at a party and said I'd been her student. And of course, she had no memory of me because those classes where I went to school at Berkeley had like 1,200 people in them. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, they made a big impact on me. And so when I came back to New York, got interested in the art world. Um, I don't know. It's just for me, it was kind of how I oriented myself through culture. And it's a long attachment. And um, it's a great privilege in a way to, to get to know artists who were sort of some of the principal figures on a scene like the Pictures Generation of New York in the 1970s. Those people are still around and you can know them and talk to them. And I think that the way that artists present themselves socially, they're also performing a component of what their practice is. And art to me, although, you know, connoisseurship is sort of made fun of by people like Adorno, who I'm trying to read, um, but I do think that the art world really boils down to taste and sensibility. And by sensibility, I tend to mean humor, and um, I value both of those. I wanna ask you about your sensibility in a second, but. Another through line of the book, politics. Your essays testify to your political commitments in the present to prison of abolition, in the past to the radical politics in Italy of the 1970s, primarily like autonomy. Um, how did these commitments emerge for you? And how do they um, shape, or how did they shape your novels? It's a great question. Um, I think in a way, whatever, think about this carefully, it's complicated because I do have certain political commitments, um, but in saying that, I wanna underscore that they aren't polemical in terms of how they play out over the course of something like a novel. It's more that um, I understand people to be actors in historical moments and in historical periods and epochs. And I think that people are shaped uh, by historical forces. We're living in history right now. It's simply that it's the present tense version of a historical moment. And when I went to write my first novel, Telex from Cuba, I thought about this a lot because I had a lot of really great material about 
Cuba and specifically the Americans who lived in these quasi-colonial environments on the far northeastern side of Cuba where sugar was grown and exported and where Fidel and Raul Castro were from and where these Americans had a kind of fiefdom. And I panned out and started thinking about this moment in history of all of these national liberation movements that happened around the world. And whether I was reading about Cuba specifically or hearing my own family who had lived there as Americans telling their stories or reading books about, for instance, the Dutch Indies, I found the same textures of life, even psychological textures, the alcoholism of the expatriate communities, the um, idea that people could live beyond what their means would have provided for them by class and education level had they stayed home, um, their relationships to the local government. And in order to write in a true way about this world, I needed to take into account the Baroque political history of Cuba and also who these people were in terms of these kinds of historical forces that shaped them. So it's not like I start with an argument, oh, Cuba needed to have a revolution, but rather to take into account um, the complexities of the time and not just go with some, to my mind, ideological idea that humans are all the same and can have access to the same experiences regardless of who they are and where they live. And I think in each one of my books, I've taken that into account. With the flamethrowers, it's this period of time in New York City where people moved into former sites of manufacturing and kind of even used the elements of manufacturing to make their artwork. And lo and behold, a very significant political process or you know, pandemonium was taking place in Italy at the very same time. Is there any link or not? Not exactly, and yet putting things side by side suggests a link. And then with the Mars Room, it's a book to me, it's my contemporary novel about California, but it also happens to be about the way that California is organized um, in terms of people who have very severe and serious encounters with the state carceral system and people who don't. Beautiful, thanks. Um, I, I wanna come back to your interests in these moments before you existed or before you were an adult um, and press you a little bit, but. Um, just to, to pick up on your notion of the hard crowd, uh, I'm actually a member, I think, of the soft crowd. And uh, I wonder about the hard crowd. Does, does a grittier life mean a more real life? You know, the old post-structuralist in me uh, wants to shout out a realist fallacy there. But then, in your essay on the great Dennis Johnson, you have this to say. He was also an alky drifter and heroin addict, a real writer, in other words, and you put real in scare quotes, whom like any really real writer can't be pigeonholed by one coherent myth or by trite ideas about the school of life. Um, I wonder if you could just read a little bit from that text. It's on the bottom of page 47 to the top of 48. I would be happy to.
His connection to people who totaled their souls, as one character puts it in The Largesse of the Sea Maiden, his final contribution to literature, is a central tenor of this work. His passion for wrecked people certainly spawned a kind of cult status, which was rampant in the 1990s when I was young and Dennis Johnson came into his phosphorescent popularity. It was hero worship of totaled souls by totaled souls. Hero worship isn't malicious. No harm was meant. And yet it's important not to allow that phase of Johnson's fame to shape the achievements of a writer who was much more serious than a cult phenomenon might ever suggest. I see these distinctions in a way I was unable to 20 years back because I was caught up in a narrow margin among people who read only a handful of books and of a certain kind. Nelson Algren's The Man with a Golden Arm, Basketball Diaries by Jim Carroll, and Bukowski's Some Burrows, You Can't Win by Jack Black, and Johnson's 1992 story collection, Jesus's Son. We were young bohemians who thought you were supposed to live like that, and we only read people who lived like it. In Iowa City, where I had friends, Iowans, I should clarify, not anyone from the writer's workshop, Bar Talk was all about Dennis Johnson and Jesus's son. He told and retold those stories until his delivery was perfect, and at that point, he wrote them down, a crackhead I knew said to me. I later asked Dennis Johnson if this was true of his process. No, it was not true. I just wrote them the normal way, he said, one sentence at a time. Beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Well, maybe I could just say in response to that question, I mean, um, you know, Dennis Johnson has a line, um, I was saved by the beatnik category, but himself came from a middle class family. His father was career military. And um, this, so, and, and that's why, in a way, I say, you know, he was a real writer and yet a really real writer can't be pigeonholed. In other words, other people may hold fast to the myth of what a really real writer is, and usually it involves a kind of hostile critique of the MFA program as minting people as generic and altogether too soft. But a lot of these people actually did go to MFA programs and kind of neither here nor there. It's what the writer makes themselves and maybe by eluding myth, they make themselves whole. I think it's one thing for other people to sort of um, idealize somebody like Dennis Johnson. And it's another thing for the writer themselves to hold fast to the myth that they are hard. And to come back to that of being, you know, of the soft crowd, I think any writer by virtue of writing things down has installed distance between themselves and what I consider to be if I had to define it, a kind of hardness is about living in the present tense totally and completely. The writer, by writing things down, is negating the present in favor of um, either the future or some reappraisal of the past. The writer who insists on being part of the hard crowd and yet being a writer is kind of calcifying a myth, I think. You know, it's a sort of... a Harry Cruzification of self-identity and persona. Yeah, I mean, I love how you 
you sketch out the idea and it does run through the book, but you also take it away as you sketch it out and you erase it as you draw it. But it, the book does begin with an autobiographical essay and it's the oldest text from 2001 about that wild motorcycle race that you were in all the way down to the tip of Baja. And motorcycles are important to flamethrowers, of course. Is there a connection between writing and writing for you? I mean, is there, um, is there a thrill to the speed when it goes well? I mean, do you like the control in both, to gain it and to lose it? Ooh, I mean, that sounds good when you say it. I haven't thought about it like that. Um, you do crash. You do crash in that, that race, like badly crash. Yeah, I mean, I, I turned out to be fine, all things considered, um, but I was going 130 miles an hour, and there were people on the side of the road who, who you know, witnessed it, so it's real. Um, I mean, it it crashing in that race, I guess, in terms of writing, you know, I was able to revisit that in my novel, The Flamethrowers. And um, in writing that book, I was thinking about artists' relationship to the kind of myths of the frontier spirit of the West and people like Michael Heiser and Robert Smithson. And I was also sort of thinking about the artist Nancy Holt and then constructing this fictional artist and what would her contribution to that world be and what would her understanding of land be? And it had to do with speed. Because if you look at, I've always been interested in the Bonneville salt flats. We used to go through there when I was a child. We would stop there traveling between Oregon and Utah. We usually went in winter where there's like a layer of water on it. But even the gas station has a poster of Craig Breedlove in the spirit of America. And um, part of what interested me about those land speed tests is the way that surface is covered when you're in a vehicle going 500 miles an hour, um, space is experienced quite differently. And so I relished the opportunity to think about those things in the form of a novel and think about them as they related to the art world. In terms of writing and writing, I don't know, because as I say at the end of that essay, I basically gave up riding motorcycles after um, I lost several friends, and not just people who took a lot of risks, but people who never took risks and were just making a left turn on their way to the post office and then were plowed into by a car that uh, wasn't paying attention. So I have given that up so long ago that I don't, I'm not sure how the two fit together. I think that when writing is going very well, there is a sense of a trance and information is coming down to you. I'm sure you know this experience too. And within that information are subclauses of directions that you don't even have to read, but they tell you what word choice to make and how syntax should be rhythmed and even what kinds of scenes you should use among the many things you could choose to really illuminate something and make the reader see it. And um, I love that state of mind. It doesn't happen that often when it does, that's the real writing. Maybe it is related to the kinesthetics of something like riding a motorcycle where it's all there in your body. And when you're doing it well, you aren't getting um, explicit directions, but rather are transferring them somehow without them passing through consciousness. Great, thanks. Um, you touched on this and 
this goes back to your politics a bit, but I wonder if you could say a little about your formation as a feminist and the gender politics of the hard crowd in general. Um, I mean, women compete in motorcycle races. They're gearheads in this book. They tend bar and tough neighborhoods. And the cover, you know, the covers, there you are with your, your 1964 Ford Galaxy. Um, you have a particular kind of feminism. It's not, um, as you say, it's not polemical, it's not highly theoretical, but it's really there. And it, it, it has to do with a certain hardness as well. I think. But then you also treat um, writers who are women who are, who are hard and fragile at the same time. Can you just talk about what that what feminism is to you? Yeah, sure. Aren't we all yes. hard and fragile? Aren't we all hard and fragile at the same time? Um, you know, I when in preparing for this event, you had mentioned feminism to me. And, um, you know, what I said was that I don't really have a worked out feminist discourse. And, um, you know, maybe the time is nigh for me to figure out what what that is and how to place myself in a kind of, you know, historical set of waves of successes and setbacks and achievements that, you know, women have managed over the last um, hundred years or longer. But I think part of what has um, allowed me to put off committing to what my version of feminism is, if I have to say it in language, is what, for lack of a better description, I'd call unembodied feminism, by which I mean I just do things that I don't question whether I'm allowed to do. And um, I think I'm able to do that because um, of the way that I was raised. I understand that not everybody gets raised that way, but I, I, you know, I have the kind of mother who um, upbraided me for not owning my own drill when I was living on my own at the age of 20 or 21. And, um, and so I come from a long line and my aunt, Dee Dee Halleck, an artist, they were w women who, you know, hitchhiked to the Highlander School to be trained in civil disobedience when they were 14 and 16. So these are very strong people who didn't wait to be told what they were allowed to do. And I think I've really, you know, that's been a, something that I've benefited from. And it allows me to do what I want to do and not ever to consciously go, oh, I'm taking male territory for myself. I don't see the world as divided into gendered territories. And I think that I'm drawn to women and forebears and you know, examples that probably have felt similarly. People like Didion and Clarice Lispector and Marguerite Duras. All that said, I do feel like I go out of my way to support other women, whereas um, I can be weirdly competitive <laughs> with men. Um, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, another fabulous response. Um, I really like the way in the book how you're unabashed about the term 
literature. And of Duras, you write, literature was her interest, that kind of truth. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of truth that is for you? When you talk about her high stakes and brute experience, and I get the sense, especially with Duras, but also the specter that you identify with her. And I want to get at what that, that truth, which is literature, what that is for you and for her, what you identify with her on that score. Does that make sense? It does. Um, talking about Duras and literature is easier for me than talking about me and Duras and literature. And I think it's because I don't congratulate myself as possessing any of the faculties or features of her and her relationship to literature. It just didn't enter in for me, although I could try. With Duras and literature, I mean, looking at her early diaries before she published anything, they weren't, um, today I did this, then we did that, then my mother came in, then I went to school, I'm saving up to buy a pair of gold lame shoes. I wish I could escape this hell. You know, it it isn't an account like that of anything interior or anything exterior, just such as it would be. And instead, even her earliest diaries are shaped like literature. You know, there's a line, I think I'm getting it wrong, but she says something like, you know, we lived on alligator meat, but in the end, we tired of everything. She writes these kinds of lines and they're already, they have this weary and very particular shape and a sort of resonance, a dot, dot, dot. Um, and everything she wrote had this quality, whether she was writing a screenplay or a play or a novel or an essay or speaking to somebody and recording it and then editing it into a book as she did with La Vie Materielle. And so she and she also was, you know, she said that she didn't like essayistic writing. Um, but, you know, the joke for me in including that quote is that I'm writing an essay about her. So implicating myself, precisely the thing that Jaross didn't like, and I think that she didn't like any categories because all of them, it had the same, what the, um, I hope it's not me. Um, all of her work had the same fragrance, if you will. Right, I mean, but you're also drawn to writers who are men who are also, um, who also seek in the novel uh, a way out of interiority. When you write about Cormac McCarthy and Nani Bellastrini, you say McCarthy, for example, if both the ideological plague and central mission of the novel as an art form has been to uncover the interiority of individual lives, McCarthy has lost his characters of all that. I mean, you're, you're not interested in psychological realism. Um, and maybe that has to do with your desire to, to face the world in your fiction. Is there something to say on that score? Because I, I, I do want to, um, you know, I think we all want to hear you read and maybe read uh, what you have to say about other writers. But I, I wondered about this, um, you know, this commitment to the novel, but a, a critique of the psychological novel. Sure. Well, you know, in thinking about Cormac McCarthy, um, that was from a preface that I wrote to uh, a new edition of the Border Trilogy. 
So I had, I had, in order to write that, I reread, you know, 1100 pages of Cormac McCarthy, by the end of which I felt like um, I had drank about 12 gallons of chocolate milk. It's the very particular taste, Cormac McCarthy. And one of the reasons that it's so particular is that he dispenses with interiority altogether. And as I say in the essay, you know, the men in those novels don't need um, a woman to help them or to have a worked out relationship to their own, let's say, adolescent trauma. They need canteens. They need saddle blankets. They need boots. They need rifles. So you start to think about what is the kind of um, what is the what what is the missing part in all of that, and what is its work on the reader? It's a pretty gutsy proposition for him to have done that as a writer, and um, so it gave me a kind of occasion to think about psychologizing, and I guess I sort of aligned myself with McCarthy for the purposes of understanding that project, the Border Trilogy, in thinking that psychologizing is problematic, but I probably had already come to that conclusion, not to the same degree that he does, where I would dispense with interiority, I don't. I have some very interior characters. But I'm not really ever interested in divulging or producing a manufactured divulging for the reader of why things are the way they are, why this character has come to be who they are. And I think that's because there's been a sort of pressure starting with the 19th century novel of accounting for action through past. Um, and so, you know, you, there, there's a sort of formulaic reveal over the course of a book. First, you're plunged into what the character is up to, and then you finally, you know, you slowly and then finally come to understand why they are the way they are. I don't know um, if we can ever really understand why people are the way they are. People are really complicated. Um, and I guess I'm less interested in that and more interested in taking them as they are and also looking at the way that people rationalize. So the forms of interiority I'm interested in have more to do with the fictions people produce, which are their reality. Great, hey, thanks. Um I wonder if there are passages that you would like to read. I hope you'll read um, from the essay on this vector, but there are others that um, I'd love to hear you on too, but you pick. And then um, maybe we can get to some questions. Yeah, sure. So the Lispector is, Hal, do you have the page number? I yeah, change. it's bottom of 216 through 217. Oh, great. Yeah, I can read that. This is on Clarice Lispector. It's important not to let cultishness stand in for the experience of Clarice Lispector's sentences directly, and yet the surreal mythologies of her life, like her wonderfully somber Christmas decorations. I had said earlier that Clarice Lispector hung geometric shapes in black and brown on a Christmas tree on her lawn when she lived in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Like her wonderfully somber Christmas decorations are a little too tempting to resist. Her dog smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol. She once held a dinner party and forgot to serve food. 
She said organ music was demonic, but that she wanted her life to be accompanied by it. She wrote an advice column for a Rio paper with tips such as act as if your problems don't exist and no matter how French your perfume is, it's often the grilled meat that matters. Friends spoke of her scandalous cosmetics application, which grew more extreme after she fell asleep smoking and was badly burned. Her makeup evolved even further when, in the years directly before she died, she asked her makeup artists to apply permanent cosmetics monthly while she slept. The way she writes of vanity coheres with this odd detail of her permanent makeup. What others get from me is then reflected back onto me and forms the atmosphere called I. Femininity, after all, is both utterly natural and completely fake. It's a mask, and it is the unifying impression a woman makes, the thing that keeps her gathered, recognized to herself and others. I wouldn't have been able to stand not finding myself in the phone book, the elusive GH says, and so why not permanent makeup for the woman who feels she is slipping in more sense? And then should I read one more short thing? Or should we go to questions? Another passage. Okay. So I thought I'd read, um, this is from the title essay, The Hard Crowd. Half a page. When I got my job at the Blue Lamp, I was living on the corner of Hayton Ashbury. Oliver Stone was making a dramatic feature about the doors and attempting to reconstitute the summer of love for his film shoot. I disliked hippies and didn't even want to see fake ones in costume. I can see now that this animosity may have been partly due to the outsized influence of my parents' beatnik culture and their investment in jazz, in blackness, in vernacular American forms as the true elevated art, even as my early childhood in Eugene, Oregon, was loaded with hippies. By my 20s, they had begun to seem like an ahistorical performance, middle-class white kids who had stripped down to Jesus-like austerity, tenants I regarded as indulgent and lame. All of Stone filmed on our corner, under our windows, Probably he made a deal with our landlord, paid him. We got nothing. So we entered and exited all day long. My look then was all black with purple dyed hair. My downstairs neighbor was in a band called Touch Me Hooker. Their look was something like a glam rock version of Motorhead. The film crew had to call cut every time someone from our building stepped out of the security gate. Our anachronistic bargings interfered with their shoot. The next day, the film crew was back. We put speakers in the windows and played the dead boys. I'm not sure why we were so hostile. There was one door song I always liked called Peace Frog. In her eponymous White Album essay, Joan Didion insists that Jim Morrison's pants are black vinyl, not black leather. Did you notice? She does this at least three times refers to Jim Morrison's pants as vinyl. Dear Joan, record albums are made out of vinyl. Jim Morrison's pants were leather, and even a Sacramento debutante, a Berkeley tri should know the difference. 
Sincerely, Rachel. Coach. I know, I didn't mean to mean at the end there. It's <laughs> in friendly jocularity. <laughs> You're good at friendly jocularity. Should we um, go to um, a few questions? Um, here's one from Sophie Haywood. Does Rachel continue to feel intellectually stimulated by Los Angeles? I'm sorry, the end got cut out. Intellectually stimulated by? <laughs> Los Angeles. By Los Angeles. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. question. I would say 100%, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, you know, you might regret having asked me because I'll, I'll have to shut myself up about Los Angeles. Um, you know, we're the most, LA County is the most populous county in the United States. And um, we have incredible diversity here. Um, people from all over the world live in Los Angeles. And as a county, it can't really be separated from all of its neighboring counties, San Bernardino, Riverside, Orange County, Ventura. And in a way, you can just keep going all the way to the border of Tijuana, and then you have to include Tijuana in terms of um, the, the economy here and how it works. So it's basically a world of 40 million people who live all interconnected. And we bring in almost half of the goods to the United States through our ports, Long Beach and the Port of Los Angeles. We're the manufacturing capital. Yes, we do no longer have a steel industry or an aerospace industry where we formerly made, as Mike Davis would have put it, supersonic hot rods. Um, you know, uh, we make t-shirts and underpants now. Nonetheless, you can feel that there is um, a complicated economy here. And if you look at it closely and notice, for instance, how large the distribution warehouses um, in the inland like areas of Los Angeles are and who's working in those distribution warehouses, you have some sense of what the future looks like for the rest of the country. Um, there are aspects of brutality to what interests me intellectually is the question asker put it about Los Angeles, but I am, I am interested in that because I think that it shows us where we're going um, as, a, as, as a world, as a whole, as a society. So yeah, I, really, I love it here because it's so complicated and it's so full of all of these granular, distinct aspects of temporary life for better or worse. So it sounds like the, the move from New York to LA was a good one for you, obviously. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, here's a question from John Roberts. 
You write in a title essay about no longer being the person who experienced the things you write about. How do you know when you're ready to write about something? Time normally passes before you form an experience into an essay. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's um, I, it could be instinctual. There are certain things that I delayed writing about, for instance, the more autobiographical essays in this book, I think that um, there was some logic to that delay. Um, and part of it was maybe wanting to encounter myself by passing through worlds that didn't seem um, in the more obvious sense to have to do with me and have that freedom um, to take leave of myself in order to make novels and then sort of coming back to some autobiographical material later and looking at it from a great distance, um, rather than kind of holding fast to some narrative of who I am and making my way in the world as a fiction writer by relation to that narrative, at least you know explicitly. You're always there in whatever you're writing, but writing novels about worlds that didn't seem to have anything obvious to do with me. That was very strongly my instinct for a long time. You know, a beautiful thing about the book is the way that there are these um, really bright snapshots of your life at different, in different periods that come out. I mean, it's not about chronology. It's not really about thematics. They just suddenly appear and you're, you're with you at a certain age. It's, it's really extraordinary. Um, here's one from our, our pal, Emmy Francis. Um, uh, hi, Emmy. You once remarked in a New York Times virtual event that if you wanted to get a close look at post-revolutionary France for 1848, you'd read novelists like Balzac or Hugo, that is, not, not nonfiction from the time. So how will this book of essays converse with the present? Ooh, hard, smart question. Um, yeah, I and I, I remember that moment when I said that that you know we're we're not necessarily reading the accounts that were written during you know published in the news at that moment, and rather reading you know the great French nineteenth-century novelists on these moments, um, and especially Balzac, but also Flaubert. Um, how, how will my essays be read in the future when people go to try to understand? I don't know. I mean, I think that um, maybe they aren't keyed to a historical moment, at least that I can see so far, since they're collected over the course of 20 years, and some of them are about moments that precede me by a lot, like the Italian politics of the 1970s. Um, so I don't so I don't see them as anchored to a time in the way that maybe I was trying to think into how we can understand a time through the fiction that are that is made about that time. Okay, you have, uh, two questions um, about San Francisco. Uh, first one is uh, inside baseball. Um, Dave Glass asks, "Did you ever play pool at Palace Billiards?" above fascination on Market Street. 
And the other one is anonymous. Uh, you are known as an author who engages with contemporary art, but the Hard Crowd essay talks a lot about the San Francisco music scene. Which musician would you like to write an essay about? So, um, yeah, I know who Dave Glass is. He's a photographer um, whose photos I actually found on Flickr. And um, he is a really fantastic photographer who's captured San Francisco um, over many decades happens to have taken great pictures of the Sunset District where I'm from and also the interior of the Blue Lamp, which is a bar where I worked. And I write about that bar in this book, The Hard Crowd. Um, I don't know if I ever went to Palace Billiards. I spent a lot of time on Market Street, but it doesn't ring a bell. Um, I mostly hung out at this place called Fascination, which if some people remember, probably less so in England, but it was a kind of... Um, Fascination was a chain of gambling parlors where you would bounce rubber balls up these lanes. And um, there was a parlor like that on Market Street in San Francisco. And um, as I was writing the essay, The Hard Crowd, and mentioning Fascination, I saw it all over again and had access to this memory maybe writing in a way is like what proust says about involuntary memory where you have to encounter something and then the memory blooms rather than it being something that you volitionally form and writing the essay suddenly this memory bloomed of the interior fascination quiet it was it was like a church and there was a uh, ashtray at each station at each gambling lane and we watched these people gambling addicted um, in this world, my friend had a crush on the money changer there, so we would just go down there and hang out. Um, in terms of you musicians I'd want to write about, not sure. I have to think about that. I was always interested in PJ Harvey, um, but you know, when you go to write about a musician, you really have to think about what it's going to seem like to them. And to just be one more journalist sort of clamoring after someone mysterious who seems to sort of um, flourish in a space of privacy is not really um, a position I'd want to put myself or her in. So it would have to be the right context. Um, I, there might be a problem with my connection, but can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so on that score, you know, what other musicians, um, you do talk about film in the book. And Chris Marker comes up a couple of times. Uh, and we've talked about our shared interest in Ken Loach. But are there filmmakers that you would like to pick up down the road? Like people I'd want to write about? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe Ken Loach is one of them. Um, he has such an incredible gift in the way that he understands that people's lives have great melodrama inside of them. And yet by exploring those capacities for melodrama, he is never gratuitous and never exploitative. And um, I would sort of like to figure out, even for my own selfish reasons, how, how he does what he does and you know his long-term commitment to it. Um, Gosh, I have to think about that in terms of filmmakers. Um, I'm actually in, trying right now to write a top 10 list for Criterion, which is sort of a fun thing to do. And it forced me um, 
to be stringent with myself and make some difficult decisions about what I would include. And among the films I would include would be Robert Altman's Three Women, which um, is my mother's favorite film or one of her favorite films. And growing up, I didn't have access to see it because you know it was before the internet and um, even before we never had a VCR. So I didn't see it until I was an adult and I just watched that movie again. And um, it is just so rich and totally fascinating. And the way that he offsets water and the flowing waters of this um, sanitarium where the women work and kind of guide elderly people slowly through the water as a therapy. And then the dry, stark heat of the desert, because it takes place without being named in Desert Hot Springs. That's all kind of a world that um, I would probably want to write about just because it's fun to immerse yourself as though I'm the elderly in the healing waters. I could write about three women um, and let that film kind of, you know, sustain a little longer than it normally does when you simply watch it. I mean, you and Altman, that would be a dream combo. Um, you know, you, you've written wonderfully about Gondolillo and Ingeborg Bachmann and others, and I, I wondered why you didn't include those texts in this book. Yeah, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you had written, I saw this question before the event, and I thought, should I have? But um, I had to trust my instincts on this book. And I think that um, I went with, if I wasn't sure, yes or no, I went with no, because um, I wanted to be sort of severe in terms of what would make the cut, what deserved to be in the book, which isn't to say that Don DeLillo and Ingeborg Bachmann don't deserve to be in the book, but the I had written a, a preface to, actually it's the UK edition of Underworld, um, and in order to write that, uh, Don, who was a friend, showed me his copy of Underworld, which he had just recently reread and had written marginalia on almost every page. And so I got to see, you know, him decades hence in relation to his own work, which was fascinating. But I didn't want to include it simply because I wrote it. Um, it just somehow a space between two essays didn't open up that seemed like it would accommodate and keep this tone humming that I was trying to sustain for the purposes of the book. And I think the same thing with Bachman. I mean, I find that the novel Molly Na that I wrote a preface to is a really confusing novel. Um, it's really difficult, although I, I loved it intuitively when I was young in a way that now um, I still love it, but I don't understand it intuitively any longer. I don't really know what it's about. And so I wasn't even quite sure what to make of my own essay. So maybe I just needed to let that one kind of marinate for um, a bit longer before it gets included in something. I guess I didn't see this book as, you know, the only final contribution I'll make to the essay form. And maybe I'll have an opportunity at some point down the road to put those essays into something else if it seems like that would be a good idea. Absolutely, it'd be a good idea. Um, there's a, a question about, about your characters. Um, you once spoke about how long it takes you to get a character's tone right, uh, but how easily things flow from that point onwards. 
Can you tell us a little more about that process of finding a character's voice? Remember you saying uh, that the first chapter of Mars Room took you two years. Yeah, I think it was the same thing with the flamethrowers, um, that writing the first kind of long set piece where the girl is riding the motorcycle to the Bonneville Salt Flats also took me about two years. And part of that is because the whole understructure of the book, the logic of the book has to be worked out in order to write the first chapter. All of the foundational elements need to be there and some arbitrary decisions need to be made that produce, at least for me, discomfort until I come to believe them. I have to believe in the fiction. It has to feel real to me so that it presents occasions for me to kind of challenge and maximize and use like myself and my own sensibility and my sense of humor. Um, it can't just be a schematic that I work out um, and then start to fill in. And the opposite of that, it also can't be me just kind of riffing on a tone and then seeing where it can take me. I think that some people do write that way. Um, but for me, it has to be um, some more complicated hermeneutic. Like I go with the tone and then I have to stop and look at what I'm building with it and what direction I'm traveling in um, and then recalibrate based on that. And it just, it seems to take a long time. It's the same with this novel that I'm writing now. For better or worse, it's like a two-year process to write 30 pages. And then I'm at stride and writing the thing. In the book, you, you tell us, um, as I wrote The Flamethrowers, events from my time, my life began to echo those in the book as if I were inside a game of call and response. Is that what you mean by the by a relay that becomes productive for you when you that was well that was more I think that was more specifically about um, living in a historical moment when I was writing the flamethrowers this is 2008 2009 10 11 um, but writing a book that takes place in the 1970s. So the call and response would have been, for instance, um, you know, the burning of a bank in Greece um, in which three people died and putting that into um, a moment of riot and revolt in New York City after a blackout and thinking about consequence without judgment. Um, and for instance, when I went to write about the feeling of tear gas and riot in Italy, uh, Occupy was happening. And all I had to do was walk downtown to um, see that and experience it. And so it seemed as if there were events happening around me in my own time that not only could be refracted into the book, but had to be. Because even as I'm interested in the 1970s and in understanding that moment, it's also a kind of porous scrim for me to talk about my own present moment. So that's, that was kind of more what I meant, the way that the two start to talk to each other through me. And so that the book is kind of about my time as much as it is about 70s.
That's beautifully stated, and maybe that's a good place to end. We're at an hour, and maybe we should release people into the world. But um, thank you so much. It's always fun to talk with you. Thanks for doing this with me. Um, It's a great pleasure. Hal is somebody whose work I learn from and uh, read with great admiration. So um, it's an honor that you read the book. And um, thanks, everybody, for coming and for your questions. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.